0: Today, for Primer, I'm talking to Lou Down. Lou is the author of Good Services, the best selling book on how to design services that work. The book and Lou's training school of the same name are based on their experiences as former Director of Design for the UK Government, where they grew a 2,000 strong team of designers into one of the largest and most influential design teams in the UK, winning a DNAD Lifetime Achievement Award. But job titles and awards don't adequately describe how inspiring Lou has been to the design community and government, not least by being proudly and very visibly dyslexic and non-binary. Here's our Primer with Lou Down. So Lou, welcome to Primer. Um, Tell us about the School of Good Services. What are you trying to achieve there?
1: The vast majority of what organisations now do is provide services. And yet it is a skill that we have kind of chronically underinvested in. And a lot of organisations are now coming to the realisation that it's simply not possible to be able to continue to deliver even basic core services without the ability to actually design those and deliver them in a way that works for their users. Um, And simply kind of lifting and shifting stuff onto the internet just does not work. It never worked in the first place, but we're now starting to realize that it doesn't work. (laughs) And this kind of great promise that we had, you know, kind of 10 years ago, when we all thought that, um, you know, we could turn off our call centers because suddenly everyone would be online, has not materialized because those services are just not up to scratch. So um I think we're now starting to see this kind of dawning realization across all levels in all organizations that actually service design is not something that just happens by accident where people make decisions that somehow magically make the services better. You actually have to consciously design services and that requires a completely new set of skills. Um, you know, partially a new group of people and that's great. You know, we should be hiring service designers but it also requires a massive shift in the kind of service literacy of everyone in the organization to understand what their role is in delivering services as well so um, we're really there to to kind of help to support organizations on that journey uh, and helping to kind of raise that awareness and understanding of services and good service delivery across every single role
0: and how did you acquire the skills you're teaching tell us tell us a bit more about your background
1: yes yeah, so i have a, I have a weird background in service design i think everyone who practices service design will say the same <laughs> um it's quite rare that anyone actually trains in service design um uh but obviously now much more common than than it was um so i i studied fine art originally um uh, at Goldsmiths uh, and so my the beginning of my career was basically spent um, doing all sorts of weird and wonderful conceptual pieces of art. Uh, I then went to work at the Tate, uh, at the, the sort of middle of the financial crisis so you know great choice, go and work in the arts when, <laughs> when there's no money to do anything um, and I started writing, uh, basically writing for the magazine. I was a, a writer um, and then ended up being a producer so I, I made all of the interactive content um, in the gallery that help people to interpret and understand artwork Uh, and then i had this sort of weird epiphanal kind of moment which i think is quite um common for people in service design we have we often have these moments where we realize that actually what we want to do is is a different type of thing and we all think that we've just invented service design when we realise that which i definitely did (laughs) Uh, but i was wandering into one of the art galleries and Uh, I had just basically started uh, testing one of our first kind of fully online video tours. It was literally just a web page with a list of videos which was totally different to the normal kind of old school way of providing someone with a handset and they had to rent it and all that kind of stuff so it was a really it was a different approach that we were taking but it did require wi-fi (laughs) and it did require a certain amount of testing because i don't know if you know anything about the way that art galleries are normally built but they are chunky buildings and so the wi-fi is not generally that good so i was in the gallery you know with my very old iphone testing the wi-fi testing this tour and this guy um one of our, our kind of exhibition. Setup up uh, crew was was putting the vinyl on the wall um, for the the kind of description notes of all the artworks but also the introduction to the, the exhibition. And he was kind of carefully brushing this kind of sign at the bottom saying, please don't use your mobile phone. <laughs> and I looked at it and just kind of realized that this just made no sense that I was basically designing this experience for people to have that complemented the artworks that helped them to engage with it help them to understand a different level of what was going on. There he was doing his job and basically telling people to do completely the opposite and then I started thinking well how do people even find the the kind of exhibition in the first place why are they even there um and that really led me to to kind of like I said think that I had obviously invented service design (laughs) googled it realized I hadn't um and then ended up um uh, moving into yeah consultancy so I went to work for Saren before it was bought by EY um uh, for a couple of years went to engine and then um uh was brought into government to try and help to establish service design in central government and uh yeah I guess that's kind of where where the sort sort of story of of me and government and service design in government kind of starts really I mean
0: Lee, that's not really a history of your career is it because there's an <laughs> awful lot that's come after that so when you um you arrive in government in the early days of GDS yeah and uh you're starting to set up service design as a profession as a thing inside mm-hmm. government just talk to us a bit about what was happening what was that like
1: uh, very difficult <laughs> but yeah no thank, th- thank you for kind of prompting me on that because it for, for me it feels like because I was there for and my maths is terrible and, and probably people will look me up on LinkedIn and go that's not true Lou you weren't there for that long but it felt like about seven years I think it was about seven years that I was in in central government but originally I um Uh, was was brought in as the first service designer there weren't there weren't any other people calling themselves service designers in central government at that time Um, I'm fully aware that there were people who were practicing things that looked and feel felt like service design so I would never say that I was the first service designer in central government Um, no no one could ever verify that but um, certainly I was the first person to be given that title and the, the idea was basically for me to come into central government to prove the value of service design and to somehow kind of magically transition um, this world of design uh, from a space being very much concerned with kind of digital interaction to something that was much more involved in strategy and policy um, and in the broader delivery environment. So I started looking around for places that I could go to to kind of try and prove that that concept essentially I I was a I was an, an alpha <laughs> um, you know I was there to prototype this as an idea um, we didn't know if it was going to work and you know kind of Ben Terrett, who was the then head of design I think basically just thought you know Lou come in and, and do some do some of this service design magic that I've heard of um, so I went down to DVLA um, in Wales um, and I uh, I lived in Wales for about a year um, uh, in the Marriott Hotel. <laughs> Good fun. Um, and really, that was the kind of founding of service design in government. Um, the, the things that we figured out as a team, I should say, and it wasn't it wasn't just me. There were other designers and there were the, the team that were at DVLA really helped to establish what we mean by service design in government. And I ended up, um, you know, helping and supporting them to restructure the organization to to bring in service owners and and sort of help them to transition from a world that was very much at the end of the, the kind of um, exemplar experiment that we had with, with GDS um, to what happens next. How do we start to scale this into real, policy change. Um, so I came back to London, having lived in a hotel for a very long time. Uh, and that was the moment I started to realise this is not going to scale with me. Um, and I needed to bring another service designer. So that's, that's how it started. We started with a team of about four service designers who um, I was working with at GDS. And we slowly started to scale that out to a service design community across government. Uh, And really starting to actually establish the cross-government design community as a total entity.
0: And one of the critical things you do to establish service design is write a business case, isn't it? Not the sort of thing normally associated with people who call themselves designers.
1: No, yeah. I mean, the, the business case was, I think, absolutely critical. So... It, um, after firstly realising that one person can't scale an entire you know, change <laughs> themselves, se- secondly was a realisation that what we needed was some quite serious investment in, in this as an idea um, and that this went beyond just bringing people into government and bringing service designers in, but it extended out to a completely different approach to supporting that community. Um, so I uh, think rethinking our, our approach to setting standards, rethinking our approach to design patterns and design systems, Rethinking our approach to supporting accessibility and inclusion, and at the time, what was assist digital. So, there was a whole bunch of things that basically were were in far flung bits of GDS that needed to come together under one single uh, kind of program, one single directorate, and we needed some serious investment to do it. So, we put together quite a a hefty business case, um, took it to the minister at that point, Um, and I remember this weird moment when I was kind of um, presenting it we'd we'd done a huge amount of um, uh, financial analysis actually behind the business case uh, to work out why this was an important thing and and realizing just the fact that we were basically as government wasting a vast amount of money on bad service design far more than we were wasting on bad technology actually if we looked at it um, as a as a whole so we took this business case to to the minister at the time, and I remember this sort of moment. I was sat in, sat in his office, presenting this thing, and he sort of whispered over to his private aide. I think he didn't think that I could hear him, and he said, "This all sounds very dangerous," <laughs> but with this sort of weird wry smile on his face. And I, that was the moment I was like, right, okay, this is this is probably going to work.
0: So in the in the things that you're teaching now with School for Good Services. You're doing a lot of this teaching people how to cause trouble in a good way, aren't you? You talk there a bit about the difficulty of organisations in understanding and accepting service design. Uh, You also started to hint at some of the issues that service designers or people who are becoming service designers have to cope with. When they're trying to help their organisation understand what service design can do for them, um, in your career uh, and in your experience in this domain, what what things have you personally found difficult, and how have you how have you overcome those things?
1: Oof, that's a question. <laughs> um, I think. I think we should never underestimate how personally and professionally difficult the role of not just service design, but any sort of user centric change role is uh, in any organization. Um, And even the most accepting organizations, it's still very difficult because one thing I've certainly noticed is that the people who care the most um, often burn out the fastest. And I would include in that group, anyone who is essentially their role is advocating on behalf of users. And in the public sector, that is particularly problematic, because let's face it, we have a very hostile government environment to many users, and particularly many vulnerable groups at the moment. Um, I'm not a civil servant anymore, so I can say that. (laughs) Um, And as a service designer or a user-centered practitioner, that's really difficult, really personally challenging. We're, we're there trying to support groups who are often um, actively excluded um, from services and often the only voice in the room doing that. So it's a huge burden. It's a huge personal and professional burden to be taking on. And we do that in an environment where um, not only is our profession misunderstood, it's often chronically undervalued. Um, and not just from folks who don't understand what an earth service design actually is and think that basically we're Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen and we're <laughs> coming in to make things look nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, a, that's always a shock <laughs> when, when that doesn't happen. Um, but the other side of it as well, this increasing narrative that, um, you know, the world doesn't need designers, we don't need service designers, we can all be service designers. Um, uh, you know, it's a practice a practice that everyone's doing. So the, therefore, what's the point in having someone do that job? So you're kind of as a as a service designer, as a user centered design practitioner, you are stuck between a rock and a hard place of an organization that doesn't understand and value your role, and a profession that has a, a kind of a, a chronic imposter syndrome, essentially. Um, and, If people make it out the other side of that with with any sense of kind of positivity and and sort of uh, value to their role, then it's an absolute miracle. So I am a lot of what we teach is actually um, kind of just supporting people through that that process of realisation and and helping them to develop coping skills and strategies for for doing that work. Um, But also talking to them really honestly about what it looks like to take agency over that process and realizing that you do not have to stay doing that work you know if you are in an environment where you have tried everything to get change to happen there is no shame in you basically saying i choose to prioritize something where I'm going to make change happen more easily elsewhere. And that is okay. That's not you giving up. That's you as someone who wants to make the world better, a better place, choosing somewhere where that is more likely to happen. Um, and I I couldn't say that strongly t- enough to, to everyone, really. That is so important to acknowledge.
0: So what does that look like when service design does go deep into an organization? What do you think... Um, the people coming through your courses are going to experience on the other side when they really start to get traction with their Mm -hmm. ideas?
1: Yeah, so I I think the first thing that someone will experience when they start kind of going deep into an organisation is a kind of, an, an overwhelming um demand for for their work for the things that they're doing i think that's the part of the challenge is when service design starts to become adopted by an organization you go from like zero to a hundred immediately and suddenly you face a situation where you can't meet the demand of of what's being expected of you so the first thing that will probably people will feel is just overwhelmed <laughs> um the the second thing i think is a, a sense of realizing that the, the skills and um, job role is very different. Um, what you end up doing is talking about risk and cost reduction uh, and change and about design and user research in those contexts is about basically cost and risk reduction. And that's okay. I think that's a there's a bit of a weird thing where I think we, we sort of see those as kind of slightly dirty terms. We don't really like talking about money and risk reduction but it's the love language of many organizations. And so it's really important that we shift. When we find ourselves in that situation, we shift our language quite rapidly to start talking about the same things, but in a different way to the people we're talking to. Um, and then I think the, the sort of third thing that people will will find is a, a sense that actually a lot of these skills, a lot of this language is very new and very different to them. And that um, there's some things that they need to learn. And that's certainly, that was my journey of kind of, you know, finding myself running this massive program with loads of people, having never managed anyone before, <laughs> having never, never had any experience of. Budgets, never understanding business cases, uh, not understanding how uh, approval cycles worked, uh, even basic things between, you know, like the difference between operating expenditure and capital expenditure and how organisations feel about the, those different types of money. You know, the fact that there are different types of money even in organisations was just mind-blowing to me. So I think, you know, for, for me, basically, I went off and studied a master's in economics. <laughs> because that was the only thing that i i could think that was the thing to do um i went a little bit too deep into that i didn't really need to do that level <laughs> study in it which is why um you know that we've created the courses that we have to basically help to fill that gap uh when people start to realize these are really new skills that they need to provide something that is there to help them to make that transition uh but cer- but certainly it, it's a it's a bumpy road. And it's one that's filled with um, a lot of imposter syndrome as well. And a lot of um, feeling different as well to the people around you, you know, I think we don't talk enough about the fact that culturally, there's often a very big difference between people coming from a user centered design perspective to your traditional management um, cultures, you know, the way that we talk is different, our backgrounds is often different. Um, You know, the you yeah, know, I've, I've, I've been an oddball in every room that I've been in <laughs> as, a, as a queer, trans, neurodiverse person uh, who went to art school and spent four years, you know, kind of locking people in a room and filming it <laughs> because art. <laughs> you know, the, the corporate events where people ask you to say something interesting about yourself and you're sat there thinking like.
0: Fraught well, with danger. You know? <laughs> so I know the book, Good Services chronologically came first did that come first mentally and creatively for you did you think did you, did you always think that was going to turn into a training school
1: no I don't think I, I so I don't think I ever really thought that the book would turn into uh, a training school that wasn't the intention when I wrote the book um, you know kind of there there were uh, from a From a kind of professional point of view, what I had noticed was that there was a huge amount of knowledge and expertise that um, we just didn't need to keep repeating. (laughs) When we were designing services, we didn't need to keep doing user research to discover that people couldn't find our service and that we didn't need to keep redefining all of those things all over again. So the idea behind good services was to help to um, democratize the access to that knowledge for people who didn't have the time or the money or the resources to go off and rediscover all these things about their services and to provide a really clear list of 15 things that we can all do to improve our service without the kind of specialist language of design and user research involved in it. Um, But personally, um, there was also a reason for writing that book as well. Um, And, you know, I'd gone, I'd basically burnt out. Um, You know, I, I had gone through a really difficult experience you know ru- running the things that i did at gds was really personally very difficult um, and i had got to a point where i had delivered the things that i had had set out to do but it had taken almost everything that i could give in that process and very selfishly what i wanted at the end of all of that nebulous complex work that was very difficult to point my finger at and say this this is what i did I wanted to be able to hold a physical thing and say, I have made something. And that is, I think probably a lot of designers listening to this will resonate with that. We all have little kind of mini God complexes. We all want to make stuff. (laughs) So I wanted, I just wanted to make something. Um, But the work that I did at at GDS um, and and sort of founding the, the kind of discipline of service design across government was principally an investment in skills and in people and that taught me that that was the most important and fundamental thing that any organization can do is to invest in the people and the skills that are needed to do this type of work and so um when I started to realize that it was more than just my mom and dad reading this book (laughs) which by the way I genuinely thought that was going to be the thing um
0: but you're in your fifth reprint now right
1: uh yeah fifth reprint so it's been yeah it printed six times but it's it's in its fifth um reprint from the original so um we're up to about 30,000 copies um which you know for for people familiar with book numbers will know that it doesn't quite compare to you know Jamie Oliver's latest cookbook (laughs) but um uh, it's doing well (laughs) which is really awesome to see and it's great to see that it's helpful for people but um the book was really a a tool for people you know I designed it to be small and pocket-sized so that people could carry it around with them designed it to be brightly colored so that it would sit on someone's desk and be noticeable and it would spark a conversation in the same way that the posters that we produced at, at, within the design community spark conversations. So it was designed as a device to, to help people to raise the awareness and kind of capability around service design in their organization um, and it's been used in that way you know people buy the book for their boss or their colleague to help them on their journey um, and really the the school of good services is, is an extension of that um, it's it's helping people to put the that learning into practice
0: and tell me about your new venture broad why do we need vegan meats <laughs>
1: Yeah, so broad. Um, broad is one of those. You know how how you have this kind of idea sometimes, and you don't quite know where it came from, but it just kind of lodges somewhere in the back of your brain, and 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 it won't go. And you find yourself kind of ruminating on it and thinking about it. And and I started um, uh, to realize that you know of all of the awesome things that many of us are doing to cut down our carbon footprint and our impact on the planet um one of those is obviously eating less animal-based products because animals contribute a lot to co2 but on the other side of it you have a lot of the the kind of vegan um you know meat and dairy replacement things that we eat that are basically made out of incredibly co2 hungry products so they're made out of coconut and cashews um, and all sorts of basically things that are grown thousands of miles away and shipped often to the UK, um, you know, kind of in large bulk and, you know, expending a huge amount of CO2 in that process. But there's also a kind of mismatch as well in the way that um, that just doesn't contribute to farming and food security. Uh, in this country as well. And anyone who's kind of involved in farming policy right now will know that we're going through a really weird and difficult transition. Um, And I have a lot of respect for um, uh, the folks who are trying to think this through, people like Janet Hughes at at DEFRA. Um, But, you know, we have, as a country, left the EU that provides a huge amount of challenges in terms of food security. We're also simultaneously signing deals to import, you know, uh, meat from New Zealand and America. And at the same time, basically telling farmers, Hey, it's, you know, uh, maybe time for you to think about diversification and not producing food. So, so our level of kind of food security is kind of going down in that process. And, where there was a few years ago this kind of massive kind of upswell in uh, farmers producing kind of value-added products on meat and, and dairy stuff so producing their own cheese and you know selling their own meat um that just hasn't happened with the the kind of vegetable and, and arable um farming uh, industries and yet we produce a vast amount of kind of grains and pulses that are mostly used as um, animal feed. So the idea was basically to try and sort of square that circle, to use a horrible management term, but to try and link those two things up and, and to try and both provide a, a kind of a, a, an income source or a future income source for farmers who are producing these amazing products, um, you know, and Also, people who were hoping to reduce their CO2 um, by eating more local um, and less animal based products. So Broad uh, was born. It's a vegan meat business um, and uh, it's basically producing vegan meats uh, from British grains and pulses and uh using uh traditional fermentation techniques um uh so uh yeah it's it's been brilliant and it's 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 strange me talking about it as a business because it's not quite a business yet it's not quite a side project it's not quite a business um it's still very kind of nascent um but um yeah Sarah and I are kind of embarking on a quite an exciting um move to a place that will help us to kind of move that business um, uh, into the future. So we're actually uh, moving to uh, a place in Devon uh, to a farm to be Amazing. able to kind of scale that as a, as a thing. So, so yeah, uh, I feel like I need to wear a T-shirt that says, ask me about vegan meats.
0: <laughs> and where can people find more about Good Services, the book, School of Good Services, what you're thinking, Broad, what are all your channels? So,
1: you can find out more about uh, the School of Good Services on um, at good.services. Uh, that's the URL. <laughs> um, it's very short. And you can find out more about Broad at um, broadbox.com. Um, and uh, Broad is on uh, Instagram as well. The School of Good Services has yet to, to kind of find its way onto uh, more social platforms, but you can also find, the, find us on Twitter um, at the School of Good uh, as well. So, you can find us there.
0: Great. Well, um, Lou, thanks for taking the time. Um, we'll put all of those links in the show notes. And uh, I look forward to seeing what comes next for you. I can't imagine. It could be anything, right? <laughs> it,
1: could, it could be anything. Yeah. I mean, I personally as someone who loves doing lots of different things all at the same time um running a training business and a vegan meat business seats me down to the ground um i'm in the kitchen one day uh and then uh teaching and and coaching people the next day so um yeah who knows what the business number three might be (laughs) but i'm quite busy with with just the two of them at the moment (laughs)